0: section seventeen of *Beacon lights of history volume eight great rulers by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand louis the fifteenth part two as however during this long reign of fifty-eight years women were the presiding geniuses of the court and the virtual directors of the kingdom i cannot give a faithful portrait of the times without some allusion at least to that woman who was as famous in her day as madame de montespan was during the most brilliant period of the reign of louis the fourteenth i single out madame de pompadour from the crowd of erring and infirm females who bartered away their souls for the temporary honors of versailles not that proud peeress whom she displaced the duchesse de chateaurot not that low-born and infamous character by whom she was succeeded du barre not the hundreds of other women who were partners or victims of guilty pleasures, and who descended unlamented and unhonored to their ignominious graves, are here to be alluded to. But Madame de Pompadour is a great historical personage, because with her are identified the fall of the Jesuits and France, the triumph of philosophers and economists, the disgrace of ministers, and the most outrageous prodigality which ever scandalized a nation louis the fifteenth was almost wholly directed by this infamous favorite she named and displaced the comptroller's general and she herself received annually nearly fifteen hundred thousand livres besides hotels palaces and estates she was allowed to draw bills upon the treasury without specifying the service and those who incurred her displeasure were almost sure of being banished from the court and kingdom and perhaps sentenced by le Trois de cachet to the dreary cells of the bastille she virtually had the appointment of the prelates of the church and of the generals of the army and so great was her ascendancy that all persons whatsoever their rank found it expedient to pay their homage to her even montesquieu praised her intellect and voltaire her beauty and maria theresa wrote flattering letters to her the prime minister was her tool and agent since royalty itself yielded to her sway even the proud ladies of the royal family condescended to flatter and to honor her Sprung only from the middle ranks of society, she yet assumed the airs of a princess of the blood. From her earliest years, long before she was admitted to the court, it had been the dream of this woman to seduce the king. Her father was butcher to the invalides, and she spent nearly all the money she could command in a costly present to a great duchess, the Princess Conti, in order to be presented. She played high and won, not a royal heart but the royal fancy. Her dress, manners, and extraordinary beauty increased the impression she had once before made at a hunting party, and after the levee she was sent for, and became virtually the minister of the realm. She was unquestionably a woman of great intellect as well as of tact and beauty, and even manifested a sympathy with some sorts of intellectual excellence. She was the patroness of artists, philosophers, and poets, but she liked those best who were distinguished for their infidel or licentious speculations. She was the friend of those economists and philosophers who sapped the foundations of the social system. And imperious and insolent hauteur and reckless prodigality were her most marked peculiarities, just such as were to be expected in an unprincipled woman raised suddenly to high position. In spite of her power she did not escape the malignant strings of envenomed rivals or anonymous satirists. She was rallied on the baseness of her origin, she avenged herself by making common cause with those philosophers who overturned the ancient order. She was both mistress and politician, but her politics and alliances subverted the throne which gave her all her glory. Her ascendancy, of course, rested on her power of administering to the tastes and pleasures of the king, and she sowed genius in the variety of amusements which she invented. She reigned twenty years and lost her empire only by death. Madame de Montenon had maintained her ascendancy over Louis the Fourteenth by the exercise of those virtues which extorted his respect, but Madame de Pompadour by the faculty of charming the senses. It was by her that Versailles was enriched with the most precious and beautiful of its countless wonders. Her own collection of pictures, cameos, antiques, crystals, porcelains, vases, gems, and articles of vertu was esteemed the richest and most valuable in the kingdom, and after her death it took six months to dispose of it. Her library was valued at more than a million of francs, and contained some of the rarest manuscripts and most curious books in France. The sums, however, which she spent on literary curiosities or literary men were small compared with the expenses of her toilette, of her fetes, her balls, and her palaces. And all these expenses were open as the day in the eyes of a nation suffering from ruinous taxation from famine and the shame of unsuccessful war. We are impressed with the blind and suicidal measures which all those connected with the throne instigated or encouraged in this reign, from the king to the most infamous of his mistresses. Whoever pretended to give his aid to the monarchy helped to subvert it by the very measures which he proposed. The Duke of Orleans, when he patronized law, gave a shock to the whole economical system of the old regime when this scotch financier said to the powerful aristocracy around him silver is only to you the means of circulation beyond this it belongs to the country he announced the ruin of the glebe and the fall of feudal prejudices the bankruptcies which followed the bursting of his bubble weakened the potent charm of the word honour on which was based the stability of the throne the courtiers when they blazed in jewels in embroidered silks and satins in sumptuous equipages and in all the costly ornaments of their times gave employment and importance to a host of shopkeepers and handicraftsmen who grew rich as those who bought of them grew poor the wealth of bankers brokers mercers jewelers tailors and coachmakers dates to these times those prosperous and fortunate members of the middle class who inhabited the place vendome and the place des Victoires, as the nobles dwelt in the rue de grenelle and the rue saint Dominique, the nobles ruined themselves by the extravagance into which they were led by the court and their chateaux and parks fell into the hands of financiers lawyers and merchants who taking the titles of their new estates became a parvenu aristocracy which excited the jealousy of the old and divided its ranks. The inferior but still prosperous class, the shopkeepers, also equally advanced in intelligence and power. In those dark and dingy backrooms, in which for generations their ancestors had been immured, they now discussed their rights and retailed the scandals which they heard. They read the sarcasms of the poets and the theories of the new philosophers even the tranquillity which succeeded in glorious war was favorable to the rise of the middle classes and the revolution was as much the product of the discontent engendered by social improvements as of the frenzy produced by hunger and despair the court favored the improvements of paris especially those designed for public amusements the gardens of the tuileries were embellished the champs Elysee planted with trees and pictures were exhibited in the grand salon of the louvre the thtre francois the royal opera the opera comique and various halls for balls and festivals were then erected those fruitful nurseries of future clubs those poisoned wells of popular education nor were charities forgotten with the building of the pantheon and the extension of the boulevards the hôpital des enfants trouvés allowed mothers unseen and unheard to bequeath their children to the state there were two events connected with the reign of madame de pompadour i do not say of the king or his queen or his ministers for philosophical history compels us to confine our remarks chiefly to great controlling agencies whether they be sovereigns or people to such a man as peter the great when one speaks of a semi-barbarous nation to ideas when we describe popular revolutions which had a great influence in unsettling the kingdom although brought about in no inconsiderable measure by this unscrupulous mistress of the king these were the expulsion of the jesuits and the triumph of the philosophers in regard to the first i would say that madame de pompadour did not like the jesuits not because they were the enemies of liberal principles not because they were the most consistent advocates and friends of despotism in all its forms intellectual religious and political or the writers of claustic books or the perverters of educational instruction or boastful missionaries in Japan and China, or cunning intriguers in the courts of princes, or artful confessors of the great, or uncompromising despots in the schools, but because they interfered with her ascendancy. It is true she despised their sophistries, ridiculed their pretensions, and detested their government, but her hostility was excited, not because they aspired like her, like the philosophers, like the popes, like the press in our times, to a participation in the government of the world but because they disputed her claims as one of the powers of the age. The Jesuits were scandalized that such a woman should usurp the reins of state, especially when they perceived that she mocked and defied them, and they therefore refused to pay her court and even conspired to effect her overthrow. But they had not sufficiently considered the potency of her wrath or the desperate means of revenge to which she could resort, nor had they considered those other influences which had been gradually undermining their influence even the sarcasms of the Jansenists, the ridicule of the philosophers, and the invectives of the parliaments. Only one or two favoring circumstances were required to kindle the smothered fires of hatred into a blazing flame, and these were furnished by the attempted assassination of the king, in his garden at Versailles, by Damien the fanatic, and the failure of Lavalette, the Jesuit banker and merchant at Martinique. Then, when the nation was astounded by their political conspiracies and their commercial gambling to say nothing of the perversion of their truth did their arch-enemy the king's mistress use her power over the king's minister her own creature the Due de choiseul to decree the confiscation of their goods and their banishment from the realm nay to induce the pope himself in conjunction with the entreaties of all the bourbon courts of europe to take away their charter and to suppress their order The fall of the Jesuits had been already alluded to in another volume, and I will not here enlarge on that singular event brought about by the malice of a woman whom they had ventured to despise. It is easy to account for her hatred and the general indignation of Europe. It is not difficult to understand that the decline of that great body in those virtues which originally elevated them should be followed by animosities which would undermine their power. We can see why their moral influence should pass away even when they were in possession of dignities and honors and wealth but it is a most singular fact that the pope himself with whose interests they were allied their natural protector the head of the hierarchy which they so constantly defended should have been made the main agent in their temporary humiliation yet clement the fourteenth the weak and timid ganganelli was forced to this suicidal act old hildebrand would have fought like a lion and died like a dog rather than have stooped to such autocrats as the bourbon princes a judicial and mysterious blindness however was sent upon clement his strength from the moment was paralyzed and he signed the edict which dispersed the best soldiers that sustained the interests of absolutism in europe the effect of the suppression of the order in france was both good and ill The event unquestionably led to the propagation of an impious philosophy and all sorts of crude opinions and ill-digested theories, both in government and religion, in the schools, the salons, and the pulpits of France. The press, relieved of its most watchful and jealous spies, teemed with pamphlets and books of the most licentious character. The good and evil powers were both unchained and suffered to go free about the land, and to do what work they could there are many who feel that this combat is necessary for the full development of human strength and virtue who maintain that the good is much more powerful than the evil in any age of moral experiences and who believe that angels of light will on our mundane arena prevail over angels of darkness that one truth is stronger than one thousand lies and that two can put ten thousand to flight there are others again who think that there is a vitality in error as well as a vitality in truth as proved seemingly by the prevalence of pagan falsehoods, Mohammedan empires, and papal superstitions. But to whatever party clearness of judgment belongs, one thing is historically certain, that never was poor human nature more puzzled by false guides, more tempted by appetites and passions, more enslaved by the lust of the eye and the pride of life, than during the latter years of the reign of Louis XV. Never was there a period or a country in Christendom more frivolous, pleasure-seeking, skeptical, irreligious vain conceited and superficial than during the reign of madame de pompadour no never was there a time of so little moral elevation among the great mass or when so few great enterprises were projected for the improvement of society and it was from society thus disordered inexperienced and godless that all restraints were removed from the ancient and venerated guardians of youth of religion and of literature Judge what must have been the effects. Judge between these opposing theories, whether it were better to have the institutions of society guarded by selfish, ambitious, and narrow-minded priests, or to have the floodgates of vastly preponderating evil influences opened upon society already reeling in the intoxication of the senses, or madly raving from the dethronement of reason, the abnegation of religious duties, and the extinction of the light of faith. I would not say that either one or the other of these horrible alternatives is necessary or probable in these times, that we are compelled to choose between them, or that we ever shall be compelled, but simply, that in the middle of the eighteenth century, and in France, that semi-Catholic and semi-infidel nation, there existed on the one hand a most execrable spiritual despotism exercised by the Jesuits and on the other a boundless ferment of destructive and revolutionary principles operating on a people generally inclined and in some cases abandoned to every folly and vice this despotism while it was selfish and unwarrantable still had in view the guardianship of morals and literature to restrain men from crimes by working on their fears but society while it sought to free itself from hypocritical and oppressive leaders also sought to remove all social and moral restraints and to plunge into reckless and dangerous experiments it was a war between these two social powers between unlawful despotism and unsanctified license we are to judge not which was the better but which was the worse one thing however is certain that madame de pompadour on whom was centered so much power threw her influence against the jesuits and in favor of those who were not seeking to build up literature and morals on a sure and healthy foundation but rather secretly and artfully to undermine the whole intellectual and social fabric under the plea of liberty and human rights. Everybody admits that the writings of the philosophers gave a great impulse to the revolutionary storm which afterwards broke out. Ideas are ever most majestic, whether they are good or evil. Men pass away, but principles are indestructible and of perpetual power. As great and fearful agencies in the period we are contemplating, they are worthy of our notice. Although the great lights which adorned the literature of the preceding reign no longer shone—such geniuses as Moliere, Beaulieu, Racine, Fenelon, Bousset, Pascal, and others—still the eighteenth century was much more intellectual and inquiring than is generally supposed. Under Louis the Fourteenth, intellectual independence had been nearly extinguished. His reign was intellectually and spiritually a gloomy calm between two wonderful periods of agitation all acquiesced in his cold heartless rigid rule being content to worship him as a deity or absorbed in the excitements of his wars or in the sorrows and burdens which those wars brought in their train but under louis the fifteenth the people began to meditate on the causes of their miseries and to indulge in those speculations which stimulated their discontents or appealed to their intellectual pride not from la rochelle not from the cells of port royal not from remonstrating parliaments did the voices of rebellion come the genius of revolution is not so poor as to be obliged to make use of the same class of instruments or repeat the same experiments in changing the great aspects of human society nor will she allow if possible those who guard the fortresses which she wishes to batter down to be suspicious of her combatants her warriors are ever disguised and masked or else concealed within some form of a protecting deity such as the fabled horse which the doomed trojans received within their walls The court of france did not recognize in those plausible philosophers whose writings had such a charm for cultivated intellect the miners and sappers of the monarchy only one class of royalists understood them and these were the jesuits whom the court had exiled not even frederick the great when he patronized voltaire was aware what an insidious foe was domiciled in his palace with all his sycophancy of rank with all his courtly flattery in like manner when the grand seigneurs and noble dames of that aristocratic age wept over the sorrows of new Eloise, or craved that imaginary state of untutored innocence which Rousseau so morbidly described, or admired those brilliant generalizations of laws which Montesquieu had penned, or laughed at the envenomed ironies of Voltaire, or quoted the atheistic doctrines of d'Alembert or Diderot, or enthusiastically discussed the economical theories of Dr. Quesnay and old Marquis Mirabeau, that stern father of him who, both in his intellectual power and moral deformity, was alike in the exponent and the product of the French Revolution. When the blinded court extolled and diffused the writings of these new apostles of human rights, they little dreamed that they would be still more admired among the people, and bring forth the Brissot's, the Condorites, the Marats, the Dantons, the Robespierres of the next generation. I would not say that their influence was wholly bad, for in their attacks on the religion and institutions of their country they subverted monstrous usurpations. But whatever was their ultimate influence, they were doubtless among the most efficient agents in overturning the throne. They were, in reality, the secret enemies of those by whom they were patronized and honored. They cannot, indeed, claim the merit of being the first in France who opened the eyes of the nation for fenelon had taught even to louis the fourteenth in his immortal telemaque the duties of a king racine in his germanicus had shown the accursed nature of irresponsible despotism moliere in his tartuffe had exposed the vices of priestly hypocrisy pascal in his provincial letters had revealed the wretched sophistries of the jesuits Bayle, even in his critical dictionary had furnished materials for future sceptics But the hostilities of all these men were united in Voltaire, who in nearly two hundred volumes, and with a fecundity of genius perfectly amazing and unparalleled, in poetry, in history, in criticism, yet without striking originality or profound speculations, astonished and delighted his generation. This great and popular writer clothed his attacks on ecclesiastical power and upon Christianity itself in the most artistic and attractive language—clear, simple, logical, without pedantry or ostentation, and enlivened it with brilliant sarcasms, appealing to popular prejudices and never soaring beyond popular appreciation. Never did a man have such popularity, never did a famous writer leave so little to posterity which posterity can value. While Voltaire was indirectly undermining the religious convictions of mankind, the encyclopedists more directly attacked the sources of religious belief, and openly denied what Voltaire had doubted but neither diderot nor d'alembert made such shameless assaults as the apostles of a still more atheistic school such men as heveltius and the baron de holbach who advocated undisguised selfishness and attributed all virtuous impulses to animal sensation more dangerous still than these ribald blasphemers were those sentimental and morbid expounders of humanity of whom rousseau was the type a man of more genius perhaps than any I have named, but the most egotistical of that whole generation of dreamers and sensualists who prepared the way for revolution. He was the father of those agitating ideas which spread over Europe and reached America. He gave utterance in his eloquent writings to those mighty watchwords liberty, fraternity, and equality, that equally animated Mirabeau, Robespierre, and Jefferson but the writings of the philosophers will again be alluded to in the next lecture as among the efficient causes of the french revolution when we contemplate those financial embarrassments which arose from half a century of almost universal war and those awful burdens which bent to the dust in suffering and shame the whole people of a great country when we consider the absurd and wicked distinctions which separated man from man and the settled hostility of the clergy to all means of intellectual and social improvement when we remember the unparalleled vices of a licentious court the ignominious negligence of the government to the happiness and wants of those whom it was its duty to protect and the shameless insults which an infamous woman was allowed to heap upon the nation and then when we bear in mind all the elements of disgust of discontent of innovation and of reckless and impious defiance can we wonder that a revolution was inevitable, if society is destined to be progressive and a man ever to be allowed to break his fetters? On that revolution I cannot enter. I leave the subject as the winds begin to howl and the rains begin to fall and the floods begin to rise, and all together to beat upon that house which was built upon the sand. Authorities Lacroix tells Histoire de France henri martin's history of france Du Lores' histoire de paris lord Broman's lives of rousseau and voltaire memoirs de madame de pompadour memoirs de madame de barry revue des daumont 1847 chateau de lucien l'ami des hommes par m le marquis de mirabeau maxime's Générales du gouvernement Par Quisney, histoire philosophique du régime de louis xv par le comte de Tocqueville mémoires secrètes pièces inédites sous le régime de louis xv anecdotes de la cour de france pédant la faveur de madame pompadour louis xv et la société du 18th. Cicle par M. Capfig, Alison's Introductory Chapter to the History of Europe. Louis XV et son Cicle par Voltaire, Saint-Simon, Mémoires des Duclos, Mémoires des Ducs de Richelieu. End of section 17